Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich. My guest for this episode is Joseph T. Stewart, and we will be discussing his book, Christopher Dawson, A Cultural Mind in the Age of the Great War, published by Catholic University of America Press in 2022. Christopher Dawson was a British historian of ideas and world cultures who lived from 1889 to 1970. Like many of his generation, he was deeply shaken by the First World War, and that inspired him to explore how cultures evolve and deal with crises. This led him to develop a cultural mind that would guide him through his scholarship. Joseph T. Stewart is an assistant professor of history and a fellow of Catholic studies at the University of Mary in Bismarck, North Dakota. Uh, Joseph T. Stewart, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me, Stephen. Now, uh, we usually like to begin our interviews by asking our guests, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and what's kind of the backstory behind writing this book? And I'm sure you got plenty of stories about that. Sure. Yeah. So I, I grew up in, in Michigan and then uh, for my graduate school, I had the great joy of studying at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland and then later on the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, where I worked with uh, two wonderful mentors on Christopher Dawson and was able to go to different archives around Britain and in the United States, tracking down Dawson material and uh, have just um, utilized Dawson's thought in my work now at the University of Mary in Bismarck, North Dakota, where I live now with my wife and three kids and one on the way, um, I've used Dawson's material quite a bit in my classes and building up the history program and and uh, and things. And it's just been so useful and helpful. And so that pedagogical kind of use of Dawson's work has actually played into kind of the way I I put this book together based on the the dissertation research more than 10 years ago now. But uh, so it came together with this book and Catholic University of America Press uh, published it. And I was just delighted to work with him. And so here it is. Hmm. Yeah. Now, uh, for people who might not be familiar with who Dawson was, could you kind of briefly explain who Christopher Dawson was and what's kind of his significance? Like why write a book about him? Sure. Yeah. So born in 1889, uh, died in 1970. He was a great English uh, independent scholar of the old kind of the old school tradition. He taught, he did teach at different universities, but uh, he, and he ended his career actually as the the chair of Catholic studies at at Harvard University. But um, but he was very much an independent scholar. Um, claims to fame, um, more than twenty books, uh, just countless articles. Uh, he gave the Gifford lectures at the University of Edinburgh in uh, nineteen forty eight on religion, and he was elected to the British Academy, um, and he edited the um, the Dublin Review during the Second World War and, and led kind of a, a movement called the Sword of the Spirit in uh, in England during that time, kind of uniting people around the, the war effort. And uh, so those are some of the things he did. He's known uh, in his books as just a, a really clear writer. Uh, and his books were 
not just widely read, but published in, in different countries and translated. Um, his theme of his work is sort of the, the relationship between religion and culture is kind of how I would put it in a simple sense. And looking at sort of world history from the point of view of archaeology to anthropology to you know, comparative religion and everything in between and saying, OK, what can we know about human beings in cultures and their relationship to religion? And what does that have to say about our own modern secular cultures, at least in the West. So, so, there, so there's some of, the, some of the main themes of, of his work. And just to give you a little sense, Stephen, of the, of the kind of people he influenced, I just want to throw out a few names here. Um, so his publisher, Frank Sheed, once said that Dawson was more like a movement than a man. His work influenced many historians from William H. McNeil to R.H. Tawney, philosophers C.E.M. Jode and Etienne Gilson, novelists from Aldous Huxley to Vera Britton, uh, journalists like Barbara Ward and Douglas Woodruff, uh, foreign scholars like Jacques Le Goff and Louis Helfen, poets from David Jones to T.S. Eliot, archaeologists like C. Daryl Ford and V. Gordon Child, theologians Bernard Lonergan, Thomas Merton, V.A. Demont, and Reinhold Niebuhr, um, sociologists from Robert E. Park, great American sociologist, and Carl Mannheim, educationalists, Ju Justice George Lawler and Eugene Cavane, Monks, um, Dom B. Griffiths, great historian or uh, great um, sort of missionary to India, and um, Dom David Knowles, who was a great historian. Uh, political thinkers from Russell Kirk to Richard John Newhouse, and publishers uh, Frank Sheed, Maisie Ward, and Henry Luce, who uh, was a publisher of Time and Life and Fortune magazines. So those are some of the people that he that he influenced. Yeah, that's quite an impressive array. Now you mentioned about the relationship of uh, religion and culture in Dawson's work. And why was that like a particular theme of Dawson's work as opposed to say nations, states, or even as you put it in the book, civilizations, which was a topic of other scholars, even of his generation? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. I think we'll probably try to come at that question with a couple of different questions as we work along here, because it's so huge, but I'll just kind of start an answer now, which is this. So Dawson was of the World War I generation. So he was born in 1889. Um, he was too sickly to actually fight in the First World War. Um, he was a little bit older, so but he uh, he lived through it and was traumatized by it, like everybody in the early 20th century for sure. And so it raised the question of like a crisis of culture in his mind and in the mind of his generation. And the realization, maybe for the first time in a couple of hundred years, that that Western civilization and Western cultures, you know, could like decline. I mean, if you're going through a major civil war in which your civilization is tearing itself apart, then that is a real possibility. And so people began to ask new kinds of questions. And and some of the tools that they had at hand at this time were kind of surprising ones because they were new and they just being discovered by certain scholars like Dawson. And that those were the tools coming from anthropology. So the idea of culture was maturing as an anthropological concept during the First World War um, and then kind of in the early 1920s in American and German anthropologists in particular, like Franz Boas and then Boas's students in America, who Dawson relied on their work quite a bit. So this idea of culture as a whole, as something that's human, that is made up of sort of a spiritual and an inner dimension to it, but also an outer dimension of you know, physical life and economics, but a connection between the two. And then you can see, oh, um, if the material life changes, well, that's going to affect the way people think about things. 
and vice versa. And Dawson could see that process happening around him after the First World War. So cr- culture, cr- you know, culture crisis is happening. Now we can talk about culture in a really meaningful sense. And, um, and so Dawson engaged with anthropology. And maybe, in fact, the greatest contribution of anthropology to modern thought is the idea of culture in a way. And Dawson was one of the first to pick up on that. Yeah, and then uh, you also talk about how through his study of culture, he developed what you call the cultural mind. And uh, we'll unpack this maybe because you list like four characteristics of the cultural mind. Uh, Do you want to quickly summarize what the cultural mind is or do you want to just get into the uh, specific uh, elements? Yeah, let me let me let me do both. So I'll just summarize. So the the, so in in studying world cultures, it it sort of formed Dawson's mind in a particular way. Right. The importance of cultural relativism on the one hand right so he's seeing that okay we've got these different independent cultures they have their own value systems and and the only way to really understand them is to enter inside of their world and judge them primarily and first of all in terms of their own system right their own values but on the other hand cultures interact with each other and so they learn from each other and so human reason has a capability of transcending a particular their culture, right? We know from the Greek heritage into Western civilization that that's true. So that means that human reason can transcend culture to some degree, which means that there is such a thing as a stable kind of principles, right? So principle of non-contradiction in, in mathematics and, you know, even certain ethical principles that we can come to about human rights and natural law and certain things. So Dawson's idea is that culture is both, and this is why it's so complicated, it's both relative to the time and place and it's also there's something about it that's that's universal that transcends that kind of wants to like form our humanity upward like to culture a person means to like form them too yeah so there's sort of a normativity and a relativity in this complex notion of culture and dawson picks up on this and um and this is the shape of his cultural mind is is the attempt to sort of reconcile that that tension right so he begins to look at the world through this prism of culture and um I'll talk in a later about how that's formed, the disciplines that he engaged to form that cultural mind of anthropology, sociology, history, and comparative religion. We'll talk about that later. But the result of this formation through his decade or two of independent study was four rules that, that I'll try to lay out in my introduction to my book, um, the rules of the cultural mind. Okay, and so um, these shape the way that he looked at the world. So the, the first one, Um, is called intellectual architecture. And this is the idea that um, you can, you you look for the whole picture, that you arrange knowledge in terms of of holes. So you don't just specialize in one thing, but you you use specialized knowledge, and then you also relate it to the whole picture, right? So everything has its own place. So imagine sort of in your, in your, in your mind, right, the skyline of Chicago, and you've got the lights on and all the different offices, and they all have addresses, and you can communicate between them. Um, by sending letters and with addresses, right? And so this is like the intellectual architecture inside someone's mind. The whole picture is there, all right? So that's balanced by the the second principle of the, uh, the spec- second rule, which is boundary thinking, okay? Which protects the integrity of distinct disciplines. So while we're looking for a synthesis, a whole big picture, we're not, not blending disciplines together as if they don't matter. No, that's irrational and unscientific. We have to keep the, the different methods of the disciplines distinct, the different specializations, but we want to coordinate them in relation to the overall architecture. Okay. Third rule of the cultural mind is, is bridge building. And this was a way that Dawson approached the world around him in a very interesting way. Um, the idea of a bridge that you bridge between people of different interests, different backgrounds, 
um, different ideologies, scholars from different fields, um, in order to encourage conversations between disciplines um, and connect things together, which then helps to build up the architecture, right? And, and then lastly, intellectual asceticism is, is a rule of his, uh, his cultural mind, which really refined his scholarly practice, refined it, a good sort of um, English reserve, partly his personality, but, but also in terms of like just clarity of his writing and charity. In, in the sense, the people he very much disagrees with, he tries to interpret very charitably. And people, his reviewers, uh, of which there are hundreds of, re of reviews of his work, but would comment on this, you know, that the clarity and charity of his writing and the kind of the avoidance of ideological extremes. Yeah. So this is sort of the shape of his cultural mind. And then the book, part one, shows how that cultural mind formed through the interaction with these disciplines and how he applied his cultural mind, particularly in the areas of politics and education. Yeah, we'll definitely be unpacking uh, that. It was kind of interesting when you were talking about that. It reminds me of some of the debates that are going on nowadays about what is the nature of interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary research, particularly in relation to like complexity, sciences and whatnot. So it almost seems like Dawson was like a forerunner of yeah. that, who probably is very relevant today in that. Front. Very, so, very much so. Yeah. And I wanted to bring that out because that's one way that Dawson sort of transcends his own time in a sense and has something to say to us in the 21st century. Yeah. Oh, uh, kind of a new application of that relative versus uh, uh, absolute that you were just talking yeah. about earlier. Uh, now, uh, you talk about one major incident in his life, which kind of inspired him to undertake this whole journey of writing the history of culture and also expanding disciplinary boundaries, developing the cultural mind, so to speak. And that was his uh, trip to Rome in 1909, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's just just briefly, I'll tell you, it's just a wonderful story. So he was um, high Anglican, but he had a Catholic friend, E.I. Watkin, and they were traveling together. And it was really his first time going to Rome, uh, young Dawson. And they were uh, above the Roman Forum. Uh, it's those long steps that lead up to the Church of the Arch. Pelli, which uh, on the other side looks out over the Roman Forum, just an ancient, ancient, beautiful place. You can get up and see out over the whole city. I've been there a few times. It's just wonderful. Uh, anyway, he was sitting up there and reflecting. And, you know, this was the same spot, interestingly, that Edward Gibbon sat back in the 18th century when he was inspired to write his great book, on um, the, the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. And Dawson at that time was reading Gibbon and also reading Augustine. So those are two very different but very interesting influences on his young mind at that time. And so he's reflecting on uh, just, I don't know, his life and then and then the past. And he just had a, some kind of experience. We're not exactly sure what, just kind of an inspiration about what his life was going to be about. And he wrote in his journal later on that he he was going to write the history of culture and, quote, however un unworthy I may be, I believe it is God's will I should attempt it. So that was sort of his vocational moment in a sense. And he comes out of that experience kind of creating a, a an outline, like a five volume outline of like the history of culture in a world sense and which he never completed in that way. Um, but he did complete the first volume, which was sort of his introductory study, which is called Progress and Religion, perhaps his most brilliant book. It's just amazing. 1929. Uh, and then volume three, The Making of Europe, he wrote. The rest of the volumes were kind of distributed between different texts and, and places in his work, but it was definitely the the energy that he uh, got from that moment to sort of give a direction and trajectory to the rest of his life. Yeah, it's always interesting reading about like those moments of inspirations for great minds because it's almost like, oh, how does that reflect in our 
in our own lives. And then just as we discussed uh, earlier, you know, just a few years later, he gets impacted by World War One, uh, And this is kind of further his uh, vocation to try to write culture, especially with the, uh, the crisis, as you mentioned. Uh, do you have any further thoughts on that issue of how World War One impacted his work? Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, World War One had kind of ambiguous effects on history as a profession. On, on the one hand, it kind of narrowed it. You sort of get a propagandism and things and uh, people like H.G. Wells and, you know, just kind of. But uh, the professional historians, some of them um, began to rethink history, particularly in France uh, with the Annal movement there with Marc Bloch and Lucien Febvre, who l- literally their, their new jobs after the First World War at the University of Strasbourg were made possible by the, the results of the war, right? So the French pr- German professors were kicked out and they came in. And so they began to rethink history, work together with their colleagues and create a very interdisciplinary approach to history that was going on in France, okay? Now, Dawson is doing something similar in England, but the English environment was much more hostile to that kind of project than the French was. And so it was more of an individual project than a collaborative project like it was in France because the English historians were deeply in- committed to their own sort of empiricist um, political document, uh, grinding out the facts kind of approach to history that had been there for quite a while. So they kind of retrenched in that. But Dawson went in a new direction, similar to the Annal, and saying, look, we need to bring in the social sciences, anthropology, sociology, comparative religion, in order to help us understand the full picture of the past. And on top of that, the idea of the nation that had been the organizing principle of historical writing for a century was defunct in the sense that historians have played a role, a guilty role in creating the mentality that led to the First World War. So we need to rethink the way we're, we're doing history and, and find a different organizing concept. And there were three other options that historians in Britain came up with. One was the city, the history of cities. So Eileen Powers did that. One was civilization. Uh, which was Arnold Toynbee, and then we, we could talk more about him later. But and then the third option was culture, and that's the that's the direction that that Dawson took, um, and so it allowed him to be able to um, utilize some of the tools of the social sciences in some really sophisticated ways and deal with some deeper questions of, of how the loss of values and religious change are related to you know the crisis that was going on after the First World War. Yeah, and I know in Germany, this is where the term historical sociology first uh, emerged from Alfred uh, Weber, who's the younger brother of uh, Max Weber, who kind of pioneered it with his uh, work on the Protestant ethic. We'll get into that in a minute. But yeah, uh, you brought up like uh, sociology and anthropology. What was like the what was Dawson's specific relationship to sociology? I know you mentioned uh, Sir Patrick uh, Geeds. Is that how you pronounce his name? Geddes. 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 My apologies. Yeah, Yeah, no worries. So uh, what was like, uh, how was that an impact on Dawson's work? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, What I want to do is I want to I want to divide this discussion up into kind of three parts. Okay. So first, but first it's just a brief introduction to it. So sociology was like the first major discipline Dawson really engaged deeply with besides history. Okay. So he was Oxford educated, you know, history trained. And then, but after he graduated from, from Oxford during the late 19 teens, he fell into kind of friendships with people within the, what's called the, the sociological society of Britain. And uh, the Sociological Review, he published many articles in there all through the 1920s, and he formed really good friendships with people like um, Patrick Geddes and Victor Branford and Alexander Farquharson and a few others. And they kind of 
um, you know, took this young scholar under their wings and, and really, really uh, shaped his, his trajectory of his life. Um, so I'll say more about Gettys in a minute. But as he's entering into that sort of practical world of sociolo sociology around him, we can sort of zoom back. And, and the first of my three points is this, to see Dawson's sociology in, in context. So we don't want to think about contemporary, like statistical sociology. Like that didn't really exist yet until maybe the 30s or something. Dawson was part of this classical tradition of pre-statistical sociology um, that is derived from people like Max Weber and Emil Durkheim. Okay, that really pondered the relationship between religion and modernity, in particular. Like, like those guys, uh, even though not personally religious, were were very interested in that in that question. And Dawson is, is a part of that tradition. And just to get a, a sense of that, uh, and we can talk about Weber again later too. But Dawson really praised Weber uh, as a pro proponent of this, you know, first thing, uh, de sociologie, or a, sort of a sociology that understands. Um, and it, not based on like the physical science model of general laws and rules and and uh, statistics and things, but a, a sociology that understands through investigating particular historical complexes, which was what Weber was was so brilliant at. Um, so Dawson really praised that move, and he his own sociology was certainly in that in that tradition. But there's a second tradition of sociology that Dawson was part of, an older one that we could, Russell Hittinger, a, a, a scholar. Uh, out there that I really appreciate his work on Dawson. He used the phrase prophetic sociology to describe this tradition. Uh, it's found in someone like Alexis de Tocqueville, who Dawson really liked Tocqueville, uh, really admired him. It's, it's basically that it's this investigation of social data, again, not in a statistical sense, but um, in an observation historical sense. Investigation of social data leads not so much to scientific generalization, but to a moral and religious vision. Yeah, And that's exactly what Tocqueville was doing at the deepest level, which is why he's so great. And that's exactly what Dawson was doing too, right? So you've you've got this classical tradition, Weber and Durkheim, you've got this older prophetic sociology tradition, and then you have the sort of the nuts and bolts of the influence around Dawson of sociology. And that's the Patrick Getty school that I mentioned earlier. Um, he died, Getty's died in 1932. Uh, he was a Scotsman. Uh, he loved to walk the hills of Scotland and appreciated just sort of biology and life. And so Geddes was interested in urban planning and a kind of like biological sociology and um, the material organization of life in terms of three major categories, right? So F, W, and P, folk, work, and place. So folk is kind of like the, um, the, the social element of a culture uh, and its customs and government and all that stuff. W is work or the economic dimension and P is place, the geographical dimension. So Geddes' idea was that a culture is, is those three elements working together. And Dawson really absorbed that FWP, sort of those analytical categories. But Dawson added something to it. And I think this is one way, one reason to see Dawson is so significant. In fact, some people have commented on Dawson being like the most significant British sociologist of the early 20th century. That was in a recent publication. Um, and that is this. He adds a fourth category to this FWP. And that's an I at the top, which stands for ideas. And sort of the inner life of a culture, its spirituality, its religion, its values, IFWP is a more complete sort of palette of analytical categories, so to speak, for a sociological analysis, thus sort of reconciling kind of intellectualist approaches to culture and behavioralist approaches to culture that still divide the social sciences to this day. Uh, Christian Smith has recently written on this, uh, a sociologist in Notre Dame, on and just the conceptual confusion about culture in the modern social sciences. Dawson 
is is he shows the way to a conceptual clarity. He defines culture as a common way of life of a people and made up of IFWP. It's these different elements. And culture study means trying to understand how those different elements interact with each other and, and help us to understand the identity of a people and change through time. So um, so that's, that's some ways that he is part of this sociological uh, field. Now, another sociological influence you mentioned was uh, Frederick uh, Laplay. Yeah, uh, who was a uh, a French sociologist. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about him and what was his influence on uh, on Dawson's work? Yeah, just briefly. So the play, a French kind of um, engineer who travels around Europe, actually to Ukraine, uh, and studying families and coal miners, and he's he just realized that human life is shaped by its sort of economic. Um, structures, and that shapes the rest of the the human life. And it, it, in fact, it's Laplay who comes up with the, sort of the FWP. But Geddes learns that from Laplay, and so Geddes like brings the idea of the FWP categories to Britain, and then gives them to Dawson. So he's the Laplay is sort of the ultimate background to this the material side of Dawson's sociological vision. Yeah, it's just interesting uh, that it seems like uh, there's this underlying theme of Dawson trying to combine both British intellectual traditions and you know cotton what we would probably call continental european that's traditions it. at the same time and yeah that's really true because uh there is still that divide i know there i know in philosophy there's still that divide of analytic and continental philosophy and what does that even mean but it's like it's just interesting dawson is able to uh to bridge that gap uh quite yep. a bit yeah it really is it's it's uh it gives him a really sort of balanced and kind of holistic mentality that, that intellectual architecture that i was talking about at the beginning yeah yeah so uh he also talked dawson uh talked about five types of sociocultural change and uh uh could you pr- uh, explain uh, some of that uh, to our listeners yeah so he's again he's after the world war first world war people are trying to understand cultural change because something is major a major shift is happening in western civilization um and they can feel it in the air. Uh, you know, the, the best description I've seen of this uh, was by Simon Shama, who said uh, that the Great War was the original sin of the 20th century. And that is so true. You can see the collapse of empires afterward and the rise of political ideologies and political religions. That We'll, we'll talk about that later. But um, there was a, a shift in the air that still affects us right, to this day, 100 years later, for sure. And so they're trying to understand change. And... Um, People at Dawson's time were going all kinds of different directions, you know, moral collapse, uh, you know, in terms of like philosophy and ideas. And Dawson was sort of a very patient kind of social scientist here. He's like, look, we want to understand cultural change. We we need to engage with deep history through archaeology and through anthropology. And we need to sort of categorize the different ways globally that that cultures change. And he, he created five categories to understand this. And, and one is just a super basic one. It's just adaptation to an environment, right? So Dawson is influenced by Darwin here, and he sees a human culture kind of like an animal species. Of course, the humanity of the people, you know, there's a spiritual side to them and a, an intellectual side that, that animals don't have fully. Um, so Dawson certainly you know, would have made that distinction. But certainly a human culture is like if you take it to, you know, to Easter Island, and it's isolated from a lot of, you know, the, the environment of Easter Island is going to shape the mentality, the ways of life, the uten- eating utensils and everything, right? So that's what he means. So just it's very slow, kind of gradual evolutionary change. Two, people move to a new environment. Well, obviously that includes, number one, 
the in evolutionary change. But a good example here is um, taking a bunch of convicts from England and bringing them to Australia. Suddenly, you know, 200 years later, uh, we have a new culture. It's certainly related to the mother culture, but there's you know, its own accent, its own ways of thinking. The the place has has helped produce a new a new culture, a new people. Three, two different cultures coming into contact with each other. Um, now, this is the most common variety of cultural change in history and in a very deep and profound kind of change too. So um, here I'm trying to think of a, a good example. So maybe like the, the, the kind of wild Semitic cultures invading uh, Sumeria in the ancient history um, would often adopt Sumerian language and culture, even while having a different ethnic background. And so you get a kind of a cultural blending um, between two different groups or multiple groups. And this is actually a really kind of exciting time in history because you, you get lots of different ideas sparked when you have different cultural, you get conflict too, but you get lots of new cultural things happening when you have those kinds of cases. So you have two peoples coming in contact, often through conquest, but strangely, the conqueror often adopts the conquered uh, culture, like the Romans going to Egypt. And, uh, and so that's really fruitful, actually, kind of cultural change in history. And that's the third one. Four, one culture adopts elements of material culture from another culture. So a good example here is the, the Mandan Indians in my part of the world here in North Dakota, who live actually just across the river from where I am, uh, the, the Missouri River. And the Mandan Indians, were a settled people, an, ag an agricultural people, and in 1750, they acquired for the first time guns and horses, okay? Horses from the Spanish in the South, guns from the French in the North, and that changed their culture. It was a new material element, and it, it made hunting buffalo easier. It shaped the way they interacted with other tribes and trading and all kinds of things, and that was definitely a shift in their culture. So that's the fourth. And then fifth is the potentially most profound kind of cultural change. And that is a new form of knowledge or a new vision of reality that is either emerges out of the culture or comes to it from another culture, which is usually the case from another culture. And the, the best example, a great example here is the, say, the Arabian Peninsula in the 500s and into the early 600s, when from one little town, from one little man, a vision spreads to an entire people and the world of Islam was born. And completely transformed the internecine warfare and paganism of all these tribes all around Arabia, transformed it into one of the great world civilizations. Uh, and that is just uh, just an incredible example. Dawson highlighted it many times of this fifth kind of, of uh, intellectual and spiritual change in, in the history of culture. Yeah, that's real fascinating. And uh, yeah, getting back to uh, Dawson uh, interacting with scholars of his generation – one major scholar who made a big imprint on the post-World War I era was Oswald Spangler and his uh, book, uh, Decline of the West, or at least that's how it's commonly translated into English. And uh, yeah, Spangler was uh, not a professional historian. He was actually a school teacher, I believe. But he wrote this book about the rise and fall of civilizations. And this made this became like a a major hit around the world and a lot of scholars even to this day still debate it but uh how did dawson uh discuss or relate to oswald spangler and his theories yeah that's that's a wonderful question so i want to back up just a little bit to sort of consider german thought in general for a moment um dawson did spend time in germany in the uh 1908 09 right in there right before the first world war 
and um and he could he could read german he never learned to speak it very well but he could he could certainly read it so he read these guys in their original language and um what he encountered was uh, a deep strain of, of and powerful line of thought that for lack of a better term we'll just call historicism all right now historicism has a different meanings um i'm kind of meaning in its traditional sense uh, back to um ranka and in sort of the the building of the historical profession in Germany and basic definition of the way I'm using historicism is just that you should understand a culture on its own terms. Right. I introduced that idea at the beginning of, of our interview. We should understand a culture on its own terms, not judge it from outside points of view. Uh, right. So there, the Ranka and the Germans were kind of reacting against this French kind of universalism of the enlightenment and Napoleon, you know, forcing his way onto Germany. It's like, no, we should understand cultures on their own terms, right? It's sort of the emotional background maybe to some of this historicism. But it's a powerful line of thinking that really laid the basis for the modern profession of history and historical thinking. Um, and you see it in, in key characters of the late 19th century, like Ernst Trolch, who definitely influenced Dawson a lot too, uh, Max Weber as well. But one of the problems in the late 19th century was a kind of crisis in historicism, uh, scholars have recognized. And and part of the problem is this, right? Some Somebody like like Ranka, who was a, a pious Lutheran, retained belief in God as sort of transcendent above the change of cultures. But by the late 19th century, European secularism had penetrated more deeply, and more and more scholars had not retained any belief in God. And so they were realizing that if everything is flux, everything is changing around us, then there's no like stable basis for meaning or permanent values. And this is, this is what's called the crisis in historicism. And somebody like Ernst Trolch um, solved this problem because he was a devout Protestant theologian uh, and, and in Christian faith, but he also, on the other hand, was trying to understand the past simply on its own terms and not not judge it, and that had a, a big influence on on Dawson. But there was a crisis there because Trolch was trying to base knowledge of true values only on history, uh, only like history was like the master discipline he thought to reality. And now I find that somewhat flattering as a historian, but it's wrong. <laughs> it's deeply wrong. And it's, it's, a, it's an error of what we call, what Dawson called and what I have adopted, um, simplification. Simplification. So we're, we take a, a big problem and we simplify it to one discipline because we happen to like that discipline. We really like those methods of that discipline and we sort of turn them into an end, right? Um, this is irrational. It's unscientific. We can't um, simplify things in that way, but Trolch did. And history is not the only key to reality. And um, and so, but it, but history had such a powerful influence in German thought that more and more people sort of were sucked into this simplification. And one of those people was Oswald Spangler. So Spangler represents the epitome of this historicist mindset. Okay, let me let me explain. His great book, The Decline of the West, was published in 1918. Perfect timing. Really picked up the mood in Germany at the end of World War I. Volume two came out a couple years later, 1922, um, Decline of the West. So this had a huge impact on the post-war generation. People like Ludwig Wittgenstein, Thomas Mann, Martin Heidegger were all deeply influenced by Spengler and, and, and Dawson too. The argument was this, progress is an illusion. World history is the story of various cultures that are born over here and over there. They mature and they die, that's it. So just appreciate them for their own little world. Aren't they beautiful? And then they're gone. And then you can just, I don't know, move on to the next one and appreciate that one. Right? That's the story of world history. And the idea here ultimately is that um, history alone 
can interpret reality because all knowledge is historically relative. Now, Dawson in his intellectual charity always starts with trying to understand what's good and uh, really useful insights in people that he's dealing with, right? And, and one really useful insight was that Spangler is, is definitely getting this idea that cultures are organic. They do rise and fall like plants to some degree. Um, our own lives are born and mature and die like the physical world. And, uh, and so there really is a cyclical element in history. Um, and, and Dawson uh, completely agrees with, with that insight as far as it goes. Problem. In the past, we see that in a very obvi obvious thing, really, which is this. Cultures interact with each other. I mentioned this before. They're, they're not just airtight little worlds like Spangler portrayed them who rise and fall you know, on their, on their own steam. They interact with each other. Which means that human reason is able to compare and contrast and understand the principle of causality and interaction, and that one culture can actually help another culture penetrate more deeply into truth and goodness and beauty. So there, there is a possibility of progress. And if we know anything about the history of science, and you know, we, yeah, we can see that actually. We can see that history of philosophy too. So Dawson was thinking, hmm. All right, so this organic side of human life is, is one important element to maintain in our view of history, but we have this other side, which is reason. There's a certain universality to reason. All of our minds, yes, are, are culture-bound to some degree, but Dawson would never say they're culturally determined. Human reason, in a, in a humble sense, is even able to transcend somewhat culture. And so the problem with, uh, with Spangler was his deep relativism. So – Dawson points out in his critique of Spangler, without, without any connection to the transcendent, the only absolute left in Spangler's vision was power. And this becomes clear in Spangler's second volume, which revealed the deep influence of Nietzsche. In his prediction of a coming absolute power that would sort of just organize the world. That was published in 1922, even as Hitler was rising. Dawson saw what was going on in the deep relativism of Spangler, that the only stable value left would be power. Dawson wrote this in response, quote, unless men believe that they have an all-powerful ally outside time, they will invariably abandon the ideal of a supernatural or anti-natural moral progress and make the best of the world as they find it, conforming themselves to the law of self-interest and self-preservation, which governs the rest of nature. So in conclusion on, to, on this question, there, Dawson saw two movements to history, one that's cyclical, the life of nature, and one that is progressive, and you have to put them together. And it's, it's a tension, right? Because you want to focus on the, oh, the science, math, and technology progressing up. But wait a second. If that progress undermines your roots in nature, in human nature, it destabilizes family structures and economic structures to such an extent, then you undermine the organic side of your culture, and then that will threaten that upward progress. So you have to you have to progress in both ways, uh, in, in this the natural cycles in, in maintaining harmony and unity with the natural environment around us, and in terms of science and technology. And if you don't do that, uh, then there'll be serious problems. <laughs> yeah, that's a perfect lead into uh, the next question. Like, what is the relationship between philosophy and culture, according to? Uh... Dawson, because, of course, he was also, in a sense, also trying to react against some scholars, uh, particularly theologians and all that at the Thomas school who tried to 
argue that philosophy was, you know, it transcended cultures, but then they ignored culture altogether. You could probably explain this in more detail. Yeah, I know it's it's a great question. Yeah, he, yeah, because philosophers, you know, tend to focus on the universality of reason quite a bit, which is good. That's their job, I suppose. Um, but Dawson was noticing, particularly in sort of like the the the, the Thomists that you mentioned, um, a, a neglect of the the life of man in time, and so that meant that even if they thought of their philosophy as the philosophia perennis, the perennial philosophy, Dawson's like, well, you know, in some degree, yes, at least as far as Western civilization is concerned, perhaps, but until Thomists or any other school of philosophy engages in a deep way with other philosophical traditions in the world, like say China, it's not, it, it, it lacks that universality. It, it's not the the philosophia uh, perennis. Um, so in other words, we need it. There has to be a new Thomas Aquinas, somebody who did what Aquinas did for Western civilization in the middle ages today with other global traditions of philosophy. And Dawson said that hasn't happened yet. So just calm down all you philosophers. <laughs> And so Dawson saw philosophy as sort of a, a product of a particular culture. Now, he, he didn't mean that by that that truth is relative and, and things, but he just – he saw it. I mean Thomism happened in the Middle Ages because there were institutional structures that supported the work of Aquinas and others to do what they did. So the culture of the day you know, su supported their philosophical work and left real marks on it. And so there's a, a relationship between, yeah, a culture and its philosophy. Which doesn't mean that we're back to Spangler. We're back. We're not back to necessarily airtight compartments. It just means that reality is so broad and so beautiful and so real that you you need that it's you need different traditions of approaching it. Right? Each culture is maybe looking is looking at reality and trying to understand reality, but from a different cultural and linguistic background. Right? So you get all the diversity, but that doesn't mean you're left with only diversity necessarily because reality and being itself transcends those cultures. And that's, I think, how Dawson tried to reconcile this kind of the relativism and the universal universalism of, of philosophy and anthropology and the tension between those two. Yeah, it's almost like he's a forerunner of uh, this uh, field of comparative philosophy. I've even mm -hmm. seen some studies trying to compare certain schools, uh, I believe it's called the Naya School of Indian philosophy, and they actually tried to prove from reason, their tradition of reason, like proofs for the existence of God. And of course, that parallels in some ways to uh thomas aquinas in the western christian sense so yeah it's just it's just very interesting uh, that dawson uh, kind of seems to be a pioneer of that now uh we uh talked about Spangler, but uh what was dawson's attitude towards arnold j toynbee and his concept of civilizations in a study of history and i believe they were classmates like personal friends too weren't they um, let's see. I believe, yeah, they, I think they lived in Oxford at the same time. I'm sure they knew each other. I haven't found a lot of evidence of close relationship. Dawson was kind of sometimes a bit of a loner. Um, so yeah, but yeah, definitely the same generation and lived in the same place. And I'm sure they must've bumped and knew each other. Yeah. But I haven't seen a lot of interaction, but I will say this, that Toynbee, um, was just as deeply influenced by the first world war as Dawson for sure. And in fact, Toynbee's great historical project comes out of its aftermath like Dawson's does. Uh, it's published a little bit later, though. So Toynbee's publishing his panorama, 12 volumes on world history from 1934 to 1961. Dawson starts publishing about 1929. Um, but 
he has a similar insight to Dawson. He's like, yeah, the nation, dump it. Like the idea, not not that he wasn't, no, didn't love his nation or wasn't a patriot. I don't mean that. I mean, intellectually, the, the idea of the nation as being the basis for historical study, this is bunk, Toynbee would say. So we need, uh, need a different option. Dawson goes with culture. Toynbee goes with civilization, the idea of civilizations. Um, so now they, they, they knew each other's work. There's no question. Uh, Toynbee wrote on Dawson and, and Dawson wrote on Toynbee. So they certainly respected each other. And, and Dawson really in, respected Toynbee's incredible breadth and his uh, ability to deal with world civilizations. There's no question that Dawson admired that because Dawson wrote about civilizations himself. But, and here's the main difference. In reality, a civilization is far more complex than sort of the philosophers of history have realized because a civilization ultimately is a superculture. It's it's made up of many cultures. So think of Western civilization for a moment, and we we realize, oh, we have American culture within Western civilization. We have British culture. We have French culture. And even within American culture, there's different subcultures. So a civilization is super complex with many different regional cultures that make up its identity. So, so Dawson wrote this in his great essay on Toynbee, quote, the higher civilizations usually represent a fusion of at least two independent traditions of culture. Hence, I do not believe it is possible to study the higher civilizations satisfactorily until we have succeeded in analyzing their different cultural components. In other words, the essential basis of the study of history must be not just a comparative study of the higher civilizations, but a study of their constituent cultures. And here we must follow not the grand synoptic method of the philosophers of history, but the more laborious and meticulous scientific technique of the social anthropologists. That's a key difference uh, with Toynbee. So my fundamental criticism of Toynbee's great work, Dawson concluded his essay, is that it is too telescopic and that a true science of human cultures must be based on a more microscopic technique of anthropological and historical research. Yeah, I remember he talked about superculture, culture, and then uh, subculture or microculture, uh, so forth. But it was kind of interesting. He always said, no, you got to pay attention to all different levels and not just uh, the macro yep, that's level, right. which I think is kind of an interesting uh, thought because I, I know there's a lot of debate that's always focusing, oh, no, the macro is what matters, the, the middle, meso is what matters, no, it's the micro. And it's like, no, they all play a role. They all got to be studied together. That's right. That's right. Dawson was worried about the opposite problem from nationalism, which is internationalism. <laughs> and so the problem with internationalism is that it, it, it um, disrespects and devalues the importance of local cultures. And, and you can start to see that in, in Europe and the European Union right now with Brexit and with Scotland and, and different regions of Spain. And you, you get those tensions between the internationalism and the importance of national communities. And so we can't let our our dislike of nationalism lead us into the opposite problem. And Dawson saw culture as sort of a mediating concept between those. Yeah. And that's very, very relevant uh, to uh, today's uh, debates. Now uh, we did touch a bit on Dawson's work in uh, religion and culture. Uh, can you fill us in on that? And he also did a lot of work on comparative. You mentioned this earlier. Yeah. Yeah, he did. Yeah. So he's, he's engaged with anthropology, sociology, history, and comparative religion really deeply. And um, so comparative religion is a field that deals with sort of the systematic study and comparison of world religions. And, and Dawson showed that that um, religion has provided the basic vision of, of all 
human societies in history. Um, no, very, very different kinds of religious visions for sure. Uh, but he would even extend this argument to secular societies today. And, and we can maybe go into that a little bit soon when we talk about politics and things. But, um, but he's, he, is, he is making this claim that, that basically modern secularist regimes uh, are just as subject to comparative religion analysis than, you know, as Hindu India and, and Muslim Arabia. So that's an interesting kind of um, take. It seems to me um, he sees the essential function of religion as kind of bridging between the human world and whatever is considered the divine uh, sort of its basic reality, uh, a bridge. And Dawson therefore defended what we could call the irreducibility of religious experience. All right. So I'm um, kind of like William James did, too. Um, but Dawson did it in a more extensive sense, but he's, he's defending the irreducibility of religious experience from reductionist thinkers such as James Fraser, Sigmund Freud, and Emil Durkheim. These were great early 20th century religious thinkers who reduced religion to something else. In other words, they, they wouldn't accept the religious person's own claim. Uh, they would say, no, Fraser would say religion is really based on fear and not being able to understand the world. Uh, and Freud would say religion is based on psychological complexes and neuroses, and, and Durkheim would say religion is based on sort of a collective consciousness uh, of people, sort of um, you know having this big feeling, and uh, when they're together in a big community, and then you know in a worshiping that or something. And, and Dawson is saying, okay, well, look, we might get some viable insights uh, into religion from these guys to some degree, and we can push them as far as they go. Um, but in the end, there's an irreducible sense here of, of something that's like breaking into human life and particularly consciousness. And, and William James saw that too. And other, other great thinkers like, um, like Rudolf Otto and others of the early 20th century would very much have agreed with Dawson on this idea, sort of this mysterium tremendum of Otto, that there's, that there's a, an experience that is hard to describe unless a person has had it or knows somebody that's had it, but a, an experience of something that's just wholly other as, as Otto talked about and, and Anthropological work, I mean, confirms this across the board uh, in, the, in the Native American vision experiences and Muhammad's visionary experience. And, you know, all across the world, there's this there's this mysterious dimension that it can't be simply reduced to something of of this world, uh, as Dawson and many others have, have argued. So Dawson's uh, comparative religion is non-reductionistic, which means that there's room for important contributions of philosophy and theology in his comparative religion. Um, in other words, that you need the tools to help you understand the object, right? So if you're studying an animal species, you need biology. If you're studying religion, yes, you need the human sciences, but you also need the sciences that deal with the religious object, namely philosophy and theology. So that's, I think, a, a really essential contribution of Dawson's to comparative religion in, in, bring, in, in sort of opening it up to the role of philosophy and theology in this, which means that there's a universal dimension once again, and, and a basis for comparative analysis then um, to other to other religions. So I think I'll, I'll stop there on that question. Yeah, I could even relate this to some of the more current research that's trying to prove that religion is just a basis of uh, neuroscience or uh, biology. And I mean, yes, those play important roles, but they don't explain the whole entire story. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. There's a recent study out from New York University on 
you know, studying near-death experiences. And just the conclusion is that we don't know what's going on here. There's there's a mystery here. There's something irreducible in if cross-comparative analysis of near-death experiences of uh, a different dimension to life. And, and that's exactly what scholars have been have been saying ever since comparative religion arose in the in the 19th century. I mean, it's a controversy for sure, but there's a strong tradition of defending that irreducibility. Yeah. Yeah. Now, there were three ideal types that uh, Dawson spoke about, and I think it's kind of the relationship of religion and uh, political power, cultural power, and those were the prophet, the priest, and the king. Can you explain those? Yeah. Yeah, these are... Um, ideal types in the Weberian sense here um, that Dawson utilized in his first set of Gifford lectures uh, at the University of Edinburgh uh, that were later published at a book, wonderful book just called Religion and Culture. Just a great book. Read that book after you read Progress and Religion. Those two together are just awesome. But anyway, um, so yeah, so it's seeing, okay, here's his comparative religion in, in action now. And he's saying, okay, if religion is a bridge between the divine and the human, what are the places we can see that bridge in action? All right. And there's three. And there, and he uses this ideal type of the prophetic figure, priestly figure, and the kingly figure. All right. So here's what he means. The prophet is the type who's a specialist in religious experience. Um, we can see it all the way back to the ancient shaman, which still exists in certain shamanic cultures. Um, and or we can see it in Native American cultures, too, uh, like Tenskwatawa. Um, and we can see these figures who have a kind of experience and then their life changes and often when their life changes are given sort of a mission, um, the, the, the life of the community around them changes too, right? So there's a social dimension to, to this prophetic experience. And this is one way that the, that the spiritual world influences the cultural world. The bridge is religion, and it's specifically this ideal type of the prophetic figure, okay? Second, the ideal type of the priest. So as a culture develops, it, it specializes its techniques, right? And that's true from pottery to farming to religion. And so the prophetic type becomes the priestly type in a higher level culture, uh, does not absorb, but it, it sort of like spawns uh, a, a new bridge in a sense, because as you, you sort of like train the next generation in what it means to be religious and, and relate to the gods, and you, you create a priestly tradition of knowledge. Um, and so it creates an order. So you have the, the individualist, uh, prophetic type, you have the communal ritual-based priestly type, and this is true of just all higher world cultures uh, across the planet. Uh, a good example is ancient Sumeria. You have the, the, the city-states there and the great ziggurats nearby the political centers, uh, the, the grain storage, the legal courts, the schools, they're all surrounding the temple and the priestly class, which probably developed writing for the first time, um, was governing over this uh, calendrical science, the arts. I mean, like the seedbed of ancient cultures was this priestly class, and it was meant to be a bridge between the gods and the human. Second or third is the king, the kingly type. And this is the most difficult for us moderns to understand because we don't think of our political leaders in the modern secular West as sacred figures. Um, hints of it, you know, you know, in, uh, I don't know, maybe coronation ceremonies or in, you know, God bless America, uh, you know, these kinds of things. We have hints of it still a little bit, but for much of human history and many human cultures, there's a sacred aura and power uh, connected to the kingly type in which the kings might be gods or the representatives of gods and like the pharaoh or the, the kings of ancient Samaria. And so they're a kind of bridge, like the will of God is made known through the power of the king. 
the, the mandate of heaven in China is made known to the successful emperor uh, over China. Um, so there's a bridge there. And in Dawson notes, there's something interesting about these kingly types. They often have a kind of um, charisma attached, uh, attached to them. He called it a, a, a demonic power, not demonic in the sense of evil, but D-A-E-M-O-N-I-C, which means just like a, uh, a forceful spiritual power uh, connected to them. And the Greeks uh, understood that, that insight too. Um, and so he, he, you know, somebody like Napoleon, who has just kind of this magnetic power, even just as a short guy, <laughs> to attra attract all these hundreds of thousands and millions of people and lead them in a certain direction, that's like the kingly type. Um, somebody like Hitler definitely had it. Um, and other figures of the 20th century. So the problem is that these kingly types, when related to power, there can be an opening, yes, to a higher spiritual realm, but there can also be an opening to a lower spiritual realm. And so it emerges into the surface of history in kind of these strange and um, ambiguous ways sometimes because our humanity is very mixed often. But anyway, those are the ideal types that he uses to try to talk about how religion and culture are related to, to each other like through these different three channels. Yeah, and that kind of leads us to the next question of uh, what was Dawson's analysis? Because we discussed this idea of political religion uh, a few times in the uh, interview. Uh, what is political religion and how did uh, Dawson analyze that? Yeah. All right. So political religion is the idea that the highest expression of values is in the sphere of politics um, and that the, the, the state represents those highest values, right? So the, the best brief definition is from Mussolini in 1932 when he said that the state is the highest expression of values, all right? So that's fascism in his case, but functionally that was also communism and Nazism. Um, so yeah, it's the idea that um, functionally uh, politics is, is sort of like a religion in the sense that it, even if it's atheistical, in the sense that it is trying to organize human life around its own highest sense of values. Yeah. And, and the communists did this constantly. I mean, they were very anti-religious, but at the same time, they had their own versions of catechisms and, and, and like uh, rules and, you know, and confession time when you have to go to on trial and show trials and, you know, all these kinds of, uh, of things that were uh, highly repressive, but they were repressive toward an end, their highest end, the, the classless society, et cetera. And lots of commentators besides Dawson have commented on how, on how communism sort of in many ways functioned like a religion. The uh, the case of Nazism is even clearer in the kinds of pageantry and the, the neo-paganist um, roots of it and all, all these kinds of things. So here's the argument for Dawson that he's making, all right? All cultures have to have a religious vision because they need some kind of uniting vision. There has to be a reason to get up in the morning to work hard at the thing called civilization. <laughs> So the, every culture needs a vision. Now, what happens when you get into a, a secular kind of situation like our modern West is, which is highly irregular in world history. For it's, it's a very strange reality. But the principle holds true here, too, because what we can find is that the religious impulse of humans gets disguised under philosophical or political forms. And so then you get uh, an official denials of religion, but in practice, you, you still have it because you still have a highest values and an expression, and um, it still is trying to form the conscience of the people. Mussolini specifically talked about this in different songs and you know all kinds of things. And, uh, oh, so funny. We'll just borrow some ideas from Catholicism, the old cultural religion of Italy, and we'll adapt them to fascism. Okay. So we can see how these things breed off each other. And um, so political religion is, is like the 
internal workings of the totalitarian ideologies, or excuse me, the totalitarian regimes of the 20th century, right? So totalitarianism is the regime, political religion is the inner workings of the regime, and and that helps us to understand a lot of what's happened in the 20th century. And uh, you talked about how Dawson had his own cultural approach to uh, politics in contrast to the common ideological uh, based approach that uh, which was common at his time, but also maybe most familiar to uh, people today, especially with polarization nowadays. Uh, what do you mean by the cultural approach to politics? Yeah, no, this is super relevant for us. So, all right, so let's first define the ideological approach to politics, right? Is that there is an absolute political truth, whether that's the classless society, whether that's the pure race, whether that's state power in Italy, um, whether that's absolute equality in some of the English-speaking areas of the world, there's like this absolute political truth that we're all aiming for, and we're all going to be happy if we get there. It's it's the end goal, and if you're not on board, well, sorry, but you're impeding progress. Like you, you're you're interrupting the happiness of everybody else, and and we might just have to deal with you. <laughs> okay, this is the ideological approach that uh, your way is the best way and the only way. And it's very opposed to any kind of real compromise because that would mean a, an existential threat to you, right? That's the ideological approach to politics. Dawson takes a very different approach. And I think this is super helpful to us, right? Is that instead of like starting with politics as like the ultimate sphere, Dawson wants to start with culture. Okay, he says, don't just think of, oh, here, find a political ideology that's true. Let's actually look at the cultural roots of the different political ideologies around me. Let's understand where they come from, their cultural roots, their development through time, the different forces acting on them, how they've changed, a certain healthy cultural relativism, in fact, about political ideologies so that we can maintain within ourselves a greater intellectual balance. We can see, oh, you know, there's certain reasons that you know, liberalism rose up, but there's also important reasons that conservatism rose up to check some of the tendencies of the. So maybe, you know, the political truth, if there is any, um, can be found in a, actually a dialogue and a conversation between different ideologies, and we can look for you know that bigger picture of truth or intellectual architecture that because every ideology is a kind of simplification around one thing. So we need to be able to relativize them to some degree so that our minds aren't colonized by any one particular ideology and then we become ideological <laughs> so that's his cultural approach and and this led him to see some interesting insights so for example in in britain now uh, dawson himself uh i mentioned he was high anglican so he eventually converted to catholicism you know he's a, a religious person himself but he saw that in britain um there was a danger that um britain might turn to like use religion as a tool for psychological domination. So if that's true, then we need to watch carefully both sides of the political spectrum for over, this is a quote, for over-concentration on the danger from one side may give the other its opportunity, right? So in other words, we got to watch both sides of the political spectrum. If if a person is sort of a conservative by nature, if if you react too much against like the, the secular progressivist ideologies, then you might end up in the opposite extreme of what we might identify today as something like Christian nationalism. And Dawson would say, wait a second, these are both extremes. If you look at their cultural roots and where they come from, let's relativize both of them a little bit. And, and let's stay closer to the constitutional center, I think is the phrase that he would use uh, and put it that way. Yeah, and uh, 
major uh, development in his political thinking was uh, an incident that happened at the 1932 conference in Rome, which was ruled by uh, Mussolini at the time. Uh, what happened at uh, this conference and what was its significance for Dawson? Yeah, so Dawson was definitely not an, an activist or somebody who often like, you know, got involved in big world events. He was a scholar, but there were certain times he emerged from beneath the surface of history to some degree and uh, and went to this international conference um, organized on the subject of Europe. And uh, so, you know, that's Dawson's, I guess, one of his major subjects. And so he goes to this, but he, he didn't quite realize he went with his wife. He didn't quite realize to the extent that the, the, the fascist regime was sort of like orchestrating uh, the conference. So he was there with lots of people from all over Europe and things, but there was sort of an underlying narrative and there was a, a giving of a platform to a certain kind of um, uh, sort of radicalness uh, uh, in, in a even in a um, like a conservative radicalness or a, a kind of racial element to the audience, especially from the German members of the audience who were there. And so Dawson got up and, and gave a paper on interracial cooperation as a major factor in history. And he talked about Germany in particular, saying how, how poor German culture would be if not for all of the racial cooperation that had built German culture through the centuries, which is just a brilliant point and a wonderful way of kind of indirectly attacking the, the kind of racialist element in the audience at this at this conference. I just wonder what people think. I I, I don't know. There's not a lot of records, but um, so just little things like that, that that Dawson, in a kind of a quiet way, but in, in a heroic way too, um, challenged a lot of the ideological ideological extremes of his of his time. Yeah, and we did briefly mention that he was uh, throughout the 1930s and even into the 40s during the war years, he participated in a lot of several different intellectual movements and groups uh, to try to figure out like what was going on. And uh, could you mention some of these? You mentioned uh, Moot and you did mention Sword of the Spirit earlier. In the, yeah. In the, uh, interview. Yeah. Yeah. So the late 1930s were a really tough time for a lot of people. People could see what was coming. And so there were different responses. Um, one sort of discussion group that formed in Britain was called the Moot. Um, its records have been recently um, published and things. And uh, pretty, Carl uh, um, Mannheim and T.S. Eliot and some pretty big names were associated. Dawson went to a few meetings, but he Dawson wasn't a meeting guy. Like he was like, okay, talking is important. Like figuring things out intellectually is important, but we need action. We need something to like happen. So he he uh, joined instead a movement called the Sword of the Spirit that uh, Archbishop or excuse me, Cardinal um, Hinsley in London organized. Uh, during the the German bombardment of of London, um, and the the sort of the spirit movement, um, Dawson was chosen by the cardinal to be vice president. The, the idea was an, an ecumenical movement that was going to kind of unite people behind the British war um, effort, which might sound like a no brainer to us, but in, in reality, back then there were a lot of Catholics who were kind of hesitant about supporting. A democracy. Um, there a lot of loyalties uh, and sympathies had been with the. Um, Franco in Spain and kind of like the the Catholic powers in Europe, which kind of have a close relationship of church and state. And Dawson is really one of those um, uh, sort of linchpins, those turning points when Catholic thinking was developing about politics and helping to reorient thinking away from that like close church alliance and, and convincing Catholics and other Christians, too, that they need to engage with the modern democratic project and uh, so he's sort of a, a a linchpin in that and this sort of spirit was trying to do that he was trying to unite people behind the war effort and and sort of to also assure the government saying look you know catholics christians of all different denominations we we're are behind you 
um, we will support this. And um, so they, they did it in two ways, um, you know, typical of Dawson. They like, there's always the spiritual dimension to reality. So the importance of, of prayer, the importance of study, being intellectually prepared, because it's no good defeating totalitarianism if you become totalitarian yourself, right? So you, it, there's a war in the spiritual and intellectual level, but there's also, of course, the physical war going on. And so we need to coordinate both those efforts. And, uh, and that's what that organization did. Now, uh, his uh, studies in the culture also led him into developing theories of uh, education, which kind of, you know, uh, caused uh, some issues for him. Well, what were his theories of education? Yeah, so this is the the last chapter of my book and the last sort of major like new area that Dawson engaged uh, sort of an example of the, the way that he applied his his cultural mind to kind of some practical realities. Um, he started writing about education during World War II itself. Um, he could see that part of the cultural crisis since the First World War and the Second World War was a failure of education. Like educators held a pretty serious responsibility because they put the ideas in the minds of young people who are now all killing each other. <laughs> so education is a pretty big deal. And um, he wasn't alone. I mean, there were people all across the West in the, in the late 1940s into the early 50s who were trying to rethink education. So you get the great books program at the University of Chicago. You get the first like Western civilization courses at Columbia University. Um, you get like general education uh, discussions at Harvard. You get different responses to look, look, we, we need to, to rethink education here. Okay. So that's the context. Dawson being a, a world scholar and an anthropologist of a sorts too, is, is thinking, look, um, historically education is really enculturation meaning it's the way that a culture replicates itself. It, it hands itself on to the next generation. It's, it's more than just like formal book learning, but I mean, it's learning how to make sauerkraut from your grandma. And then, you know, the, the whole, a whole way of life has to be, has to be passed on. So education is, is more than just about intellectual training. So that's the first thing. The second insight was what is the Western civilization in particular doing to enculturate its next generation. And, and here's where his, his work really comes to, to bear in a, in, a, in a helpful sense in the, the proposals that he made, particularly in different American magazines like Commonweal, where he wrote about how um, Western civilization needs to be an important part of education because it's where we are. And the important elements of Western civilization are the Greek and Roman tradition, uh, sort of the, the native cultures of, of the West, the, the, the uh, different languages, French, Spanish, literatures, et cetera. And then the Christian dimension, right? Now, obviously, there's other religious influences on Western civilization that have had pretty important influences, particularly Judaism and Islam in medieval Spain and in Eastern Europe for hundreds of years, right? So um, he's not trying to claim that Western civilization is sort of like this, you know, this pure Christian reality or something. Um, it's, it's rather a historical point here, which is that Christianity played an important role shaping and forming the mind of the West through medieval universities, um, through preserving the, the classical heritage, um, and in so many different ways, even laying the basis for the modern scientific revolution. You know, many of the of the scientists of that event were um, were devout Christians. So there's, a, there's an important sort of identity element uh, of the West in Christianity. Whether a person is personally religious now or not doesn't really matter because historically this is what's happened. So really to understand the West, you need us to understand all those ingredients. And the one often neglected in the modern secular 20th century was this Christian dimension. And so Dawson's proposal was um, to create a program kind of like the Humanioris Literae 
program at Oxford, which was um, like a, a cultural study of the, the classical world, the Greek and Roman world in a whole as a whole, right? It's language, it's history, it's literature, archaeology. We need a, a program like that that helps us to understand Western civilization as a whole. And Dawson identified that as a Christian culture program. Okay. So this would not be primarily theology or, you know, catechetics or anything like that. This would be trying to understand Christian culture as a historical and social reality that has had a, a major impact on Western civilization and, and, and provided many of the values, even like the roots of human rights and things like that, that we take for granted um, today. Uh, I like to point out to students, you know, we, we have, uh, you know, parking in front of our public buildings reserved for handicapped people. That is a legacy of, of Christian culture and the formation of the dignity of the person for 2000 years. That's a, a little residue still left in our, in our secular world. So Dawson's idea is it, so we need to study Christian culture systematically. Uh, we need history, philosophy, literature, um, and, and some theology to, in order to do that. We need a holistic study. And he made the proposal in America. And, um, you know, there was a lot of discussion of it, some, some opposition uh, from religious people themselves even, which is interesting. Um, but in the end, there were certain places that sort of picked up on these ideas, like at St. Mary's College um, in Notre Dame, Indiana, um, and Dawson in his own teaching at Harvard. Uh, and then a little bit later on, um, places like um, Franciscan University of Steubenville, University of St. Thomas in uh, the Twin Cities, uh, my own institution, University of Mary. Uh, in Australia, Campion College, where Dawson's ideas about the systematic study of Christian culture have been carried forward, created actual programs that are flourishing and affecting just hundreds and hundreds of students to this day. Now, uh, how well accepted were some of his theories at the at the time when he was alive? Uh, were they popular or was it kind of like marginal, even though, as you just mentioned, it has taken off in some areas? Yeah, no, definitely op opposed by by a lot of people, and there's a number of different reasons for that. Um, one was that people, many people, were, scholars are still in the mindset that c liberal education should be classical education, so the Greeks and Romans, and Dawson definitely valued that. But his idea was that those programs are on the way out, and ultimately they don't actually help us to understand the whole picture of the West because there's been a lot of development since the classical. So you need a kind of study that will help to link that classical education to the later development. And Dawson saw that as the study of Christian culture. Other people just oppose the idea of Christian culture. They, they had in their mind, religion is something on a, a separate from culture. It's it kind of the classic sort of American, you know, separation of church and state means uh, religion is separate from culture, which is not true because religion and culture always go together, even if you have a culture in which you separate church and state. So there's a distinction. Separate church and state is not the same thing as the relationship between religion and culture, which is an interesting point, I think. But, um, but anyway, so yeah, there were people that opposed for those for those various reasons and just said it was unworkable. And Dawson was kind of unpractical, so he didn't, you know, have certain practical ideas. Those had to be worked out by, by other educators uh, practically. You know, what does this mean? So it it was slow going for sure. What, in your view, is like the major intellectual legacy that Dawson left behind for us today? Yeah, I think his intellectual legacy is. Um, really, his his books, his focus on uh, religion, the importance of religion in culture is, is both sort of a dynamic element that helps to like sort of like drive a culture forward. It's, it's vision. Um, I mean, Durkheim talked about that, too. You know, the rise of progress. I mean, they were all connected to religion. Um, so it's a dynamic force, but religion can also be a, uh, 
a divisive and controversial force in hi in history too. And it's it's understanding the difference, you know, when religion is one or the other, um, for sure. So that insight is is huge, and, and the way that that then organizes all the many different disciplines we need to try to understand that relationship of religion and culture, not just history, and not just sociology, not just anthropology and comparative religion or theology and philosophy. We need we need a, we need some kind of coordination here in order to understand these bigger questions. Right? And Dawson did that. Um, in, a, in a fairly sophisticated way. And so I think that's one of his great legacies. Those books are now being republished and things. So, I mean, it's pretty rare for a historian who's dead for his books to survive, you know, a couple of generations into the future and, and Dawson's are. So that's a legacy. The second, I think, is his cultural mind that I've tried to, to outline and, and give a few examples of this the intellectual architecture that wants to resist this kind of special, you know, um, simplification, right? It, no, you can't just have a one size fits all uh, the, the Treaty of Versailles failed for that reason. Uh, we need an intellectual architecture to look at the big picture. We also need to make distinctions, and that is boundary thinking. Um, we also need to, to link things together, link people together, link ideas together in, in this bridge building that Dawson did. And we need a kind of intellectual asceticism. Uh, we need we need the, the the discipline and the clarity and frankly the charity as intellectuals to address real problems that real people have and, and connect to a wider audience like like you do through this this great interview that and show that you so are so dedicated to that's intellectual charity trying to connect to a wider audience um and that's part of dawson's cultural mind and i think that's an important part of his legacy what do you think is uh some of the relevance for dawson and his cultural mind to some of the scholarship in our today and what's our understanding of the world today yeah so i think one major area we could look at is is modern cultural history um, which is, uh, you know, very prevalent since the 1990s, and yeah, it has many different varieties to it. Some very sort of looked at like micro uh, topics, very small. Some sort of grand analyses, and and I think it's just, you know, as I mentioned at the outset, the, the idea of culture is kind of incoherent in the social sciences. In, in, in there's so many. Every person has their own definition, and I'm, I suppose you could accuse Doss of that too, but. Um, but Dawson's definition is is deeply embedded in like the anthropological tradition, uh, a common way of life. It's simple, common way of life of a people in a particular place. Right? It's simple. It's um, it it, help, it unites both sides of culture because life of humans is both intellectual and spiritual and material. So if you have that broad understanding of culture, then you bring that to modern cultural history today. I think Dawson's cultural mind can then help coordinate the different specialized research going on in all these different fields and help give a new kind of relevance to it, to big questions, modern questions today. Because if you can coordinate specialized studies in certain directions, right, then you, you can begin to address some of those bigger and deeper questions. You engage new minds, young people become excited. Uh, the general audience, the general public might just read your book. <laughs> uh, that's a great thing. And uh, so I think Dawson's thought can help us to coordinate research. And I know that's true in my own case. And in my first book on uh, the uh, on the age of the Enlightenment, Rethinking the Enlightenment, Faith in the Age of Reason, it's called. Dawson's thought was just crucial for me to help sort of coordinate different specialized studies of the Enlightenment into a kind of a cultural study. Um, and, and I hope sort of communicate some, some important things to a general audience. So I know that's true in my case. And I'm hoping that going forward, Dawson's thought can have that effect and, and usefulness for other people, too. Uh, this has been a very fascinating interview. Do you have any final thoughts, maybe touch on any topics we didn't touch on uh, in the interview? 
No, just a great thank you to you and, and being able to have this chance to, to talk about Dawson and some of the, the sides of Dawson, like his, his science of culture uh, that uh, I haven't had a chance with other interviewers to talk about much yet. And I'm really happy about that because it's, uh, it's a really important way that Dawson just engaged modern thought. Um, and it, maybe I'll just end with two quick things. So one is the quotation at the beginning of my book uh, from Hayden White, uh, sort of a po postmodern literary scholar, or at least an influence on postmodernism. Uh, interesting, it was really influenced by Christopher Dawson, right? Hayden White's idea of meta-history, um, uh, a recent scholar has all but proven, uh, it comes from Dawson in an interesting article. But anyway, Hayden White said this, no historian worthy of the name is only a historian. And I think that just puts it in a nutshell. That's Dawson. No historian worthy of the name is only a historian. And Dawson's cultural mind helps us to, to figure out what, what that means. Um, so studying Dawson's life has been a great joy, you know, and, and you get to see the history of the 20th century kind of as a whole, as an intellectual history. And uh, it's just been a, it's been a blast. and It's been such a joy talking with you today. Thank you. Yeah, well, awesome. Well, we usually like to end our uh, interviews by asking our guests, what are you working on now? Great. Uh, I'm taking a break at the moment. Uh, published this book and, uh, and a different book last year. They just happened to come out in the same year. That one uh, was on the Age of Reformations by uh, Ave Maria Press, just sort of a general audience kind of book. And so I've just been doing interviews like this and little essays, and and I'm not sure where I want to go um, going forward. But um, you know, thinking I would, I really want to do a companion study to my book on the Enlightenment, uh, a companion study on the Age of the Baroque in the 1600s, kind of a, a large cultural study there. But it's going to be a few years before I can get enough sort of teaching background and scholarship background to be able to do that. But that's that's something on the horizon. Well, maybe when you uh, finish some of those projects, uh, we could have you back on the podcast. That'd be wonderful. Uh, Joseph T. Stewart, uh, thank you for joining us on the New Books Network. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich. Until next time. <laughs>